Good morning. I'm reading from Luke 18, verses 15 through 30. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such things belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. And distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Um, I haven't called mine yet. So if you hear my phone go off, because she has a special ringer, it's uh, Mama going to knock you out. And uh, so... You might hear that ringtone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, thank you so much for moms. We pray your blessing upon them today and that we would remember uh, all that they've done for us. And Lord, please reveal to us through your Holy Spirit what your word has to say to us today. I may not do it justice speaking audibly about it, but your spirit is so dynamic and it can work in the hearts and minds of people that you would penetrate that, Lord, and, and work within them. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when reading a story within the Bible, we, we have to be careful not to get too myopic in how we read respective stories. And while we tend to, at this church, to look at individual stories week by week, uh, let's remember that each story is not just an individual story, that the stories within Luke's gospel, they have a flow, they flow from one to another. They're not just these individual packaged stories. So if you're thinking about the perspective of when Luke wrote this, there were no chapter breaks. There were no verse breaks. There were no headings as to tell you when the next story is coming up. There's nothing like that. It, this is all written kind of like together. 
So let's be sure not to miss the flow Luke intended for us to recognize when, when we're reading this biography of Jesus that he wrote. Now, I, I highly recommend at some point, I know Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, but reading the entire Gospel of Luke in one sitting so that you can better understand Luke and also better understand this flow. Now, let me point something out uh, that's just within chapter 18 that may be easier to pick out by taking this, this wider view of the 18th chapter of Luke. For example, if you look at the entire chapter as a whole, the differences and the contrasts, you're, you're going to be able to see at a better perspective what Luke wrote within chapter 18 between these contrasting characters rather than just reading individual stories one at a time. Now, if you look at the first part of Luke, we have the unjust and this uncaring judge contrasted to a caring judge in God the Father. And then you look at the next story in the Gospel of Luke and you'll see that we have these characters, this self-righteous Pharisee contrasted to this humble tax collector. Today, this morning, we're going to enter into a story about people who are pushing children away from Jesus and those who invite children to Jesus. So if you're looking at chapter 18 in its entirety, you can see by that the type of flow that Luke is presenting to us. And essentially, what Luke is presenting to us is this theme of faith. Those who are faithful and act in faith contrasted to those who are faithless and act from self. Completely reliant on self, acting completely independent of God. Now, since the beginning of Luke's gospel, if you turn back to Luke chapter 1, he recorded that he was writing an orderly account. So he was, he's not just writing a bunch of random stories that he's recalling and saying, oh yeah, I remember that story, let me put that in. Oh yeah, he, he did that too, let me put that in. He's not just doing this random stuff and just putting in these stories. He was definitely trying to get across a purpose behind all the stories that he was compiling and wrote about concerning Jesus. He's not just giving us a bunch of Jesus trivia and just, oh, and I need to put this in, I need to put this in. Luke is trying to get something across to us when he's writing this gospel. Well, Luke was giving us a picture, a picture of who would feel at home in the kingdom of God. That's what he's painting. In the world, we're preoccupied with building our own kingdoms. But how many of us will feel at home living in Jesus' kingdom rather than our own? Jesus invites us to live in His kingdom, but will we feel at home living in that kingdom? Or would we feel more comfortable setting up our own kingdom and just living in our own? And so this is where we essentially have our division. Those who feel at home in the kingdom of Jesus and those who do not. To be in God's kingdom, we must fall under His kingly rule. Otherwise, it's not His kingdom. It's it's your kingdom. Now pay attention to a couple of phrases in the section of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning. The kingdom of God is brought up five times in these verses. Eternal life is brought up twice in these verses. And these are key phrases here. Because a large part of entering into the kingdom of God is because there's eternal life. In our pursuing of our own kingdoms, where does that lead? Say you established your kingdom. You die. Then what? You had everything when you were alive, but what about after you die? If all you've done is pursue your own kingdom, you'll find that at the end of your life that you won't have much to show in the kingdom of God. But you claim you were a good person. 
and that you did good things and you gave generously to causes that you believed in. But Paul wrote to us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who is worthy to enter into the kingdom of God and how is that determined? Well, no one is worthy because all of us have sinned and fall short. And it is only through Jesus Christ, Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Luke pointed out what Jesus was about in the beginning of his gospel account. Right Back in Luke chapter 1, he records for us Mary's song. So even before Jesus incarnate was born, Mary had this song that she sung, that she composed about Messiah. Luke chapter 1, verses 50 through 53. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. This is even before Jesus was born. Jesus incarnate, that is. So is it really all that surprising when Jesus said to the tax collector that he went to his house justified rather than the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, verse 14? Because way back in Luke chapter 1, it's already kind of prophesied what Jesus is all about. He brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts the humble. He fills the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. This was said way back in chapter 1, like four years ago when we started this study. It's more like two, I'm exaggerating, but a long time. But this is what Jesus is all about. He turns our thinking, our worldly thinking, He turns it upside down and He puts it right side up. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. And He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. See how our our worldly thinking is just flipped around and not kind of like Jesus? Because how many of us want to be poor? How many of us want to be hungry or weeping or hated or excluded or reviled or spurned? I think most of the people here, if we had our choice, we'd like to be rich. Only two nods. Okay, forget it. Never mind, never mind. Give me all your money. I would like it. That we would like to be rich. We'd like to be full-bellied. Right? We wouldn't want, we want to be starving. We, we would want to be happy. We want to be loved. We want to be included. We want to be spoken highly of. We want to be accepted. If you had a choice, wouldn't you choose that? Right? I think most of us would choose that. Most of us would choose to be rich and full-bellied. I think we'd like that. But then Jesus had this to say in Luke chapter 6, 24-26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The the way we view the kingdom of the world is very different from that of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verse 14, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So why do we come to church? Why are we here? Brownie points with God. 
You know, just showing somebody that, you know, I'm religious, I do good things. How many of us come to God in humility? And for those of us that do, God welcomes us. Those who come in their own self-righteousness, they will not find that same welcome. Jesus was not too fond of folks who were sanctimonious and they saw themselves better than others and they pushed other people away from God because, you know what, you're not ready yet. You got you to do this and you got to do that. And you got to get all this stuff lined up before you become like me. Now, last week, we looked at two men who went to the temple to pray. And when we hear stories like that, I, I think we automatically position ourselves into the characters of that story. And you automatically start thinking to yourself, am I the Pharisee? Am I the antagonistic guy? Am I the bad guy? Uh, or, Or am I the tax collector? Am I the protagonist? Am I the good guy? And I think that it's really normal for us to do that, to put ourselves in the position of the people in the story. But I don't think Jesus' teaching is as simple as saying, am I the bad guy or am I the good guy? Even within Jesus' story, he flips the character's roles. Right? The Pharisee back then was thought of to be as a good guy. Somebody who who knew the Scriptures. Somebody who knew the law. Somebody who was generous. Somebody who was a a good neighbor and civic and and just really part of the, the community there. They were thought of as really good people. The tax collector was thought of as a horrible person. A traitor, someone who's robbing their own people, lining their own pockets with money. And so Jesus, he flips that story around. It's not presented like that in Jesus' story. Why is that? Because being good and bad is more than just what's on the surface. It's more than just what your perceived roles are on the outside. Some of you may be thinking, I'm not the religious person, so I'm not the Pharisee. And then others may be thinking, I'm not the bad person, so I'm not the tax collector. I'm not that bad of a person. And if you're neither one, this story doesn't pertain to you, you may think, but it actually does. Because good and bad goes more than just skin deep. It goes more than just a role. Because all of us have some sort of hypocrisy within us, no matter how good we think that we are. All of us have some inconsistency between uh, what we believe we we are and and what we are actually doing. And the best of the best of us is a walking contradiction, if we were totally honest. And it was no different from the disciples of Jesus. And here's where we pick up in verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to Him that He might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now, think about this. Jesus just finished, just finished telling a parable about people who are self-righteous and looking down on others. He just finished that. And then right after that, verse 15, what are the disciples doing? They're doing the exact thing that Jesus was teaching against. And to show you that the disciples are even more dense than this, you jump down to verse 39. What happens there? This is Bartimaeus here. He's the blind man. And they are trying to silence him from seeking healing from Jesus. See, these guys aren't getting it. They're not getting it. And we're like this too. 
We're like this, aren't we? There are things that, that we know the Scriptures teach, but it's just kind of like in one ear, and it's out the other ear, and we do this with our moms since it's Mother's Day. I'm giving you props to you moms. You know, moms say these wonderful things, and they're telling us these good things, and it's just one ear and not the other, and then we just kind of do the opposite. Jesus just finished telling these guys, don't be self-righteous and push people away f- from God with your religiosity, with your legalism, with your religious arrogance. But what happened in verse 15? The disciples were rebuking babies from coming to Jesus. Babies! And then in verse 39, they're rebuking a blind man. They're just totally clueless. Is this us? Are we just totally clueless as followers of Jesus Christ? You know, where we think that we're all this. We think that we're religious people and, you know, we're good people and we're church people. And Jesus is, has said to us, you know, don't be self-righteous. Don't push people away from me and all this stuff. And we're part of a church that strongly believes in justice and mercy. And we're doing something about it. It's not just lip service here at Regeneration. We do stuff about it. And we're so busy working in the community. And we're so busy serving people. But maybe our view of the kingdom is so myopic that we're pushing aside those who need Jesus right now because we're so busy serving Him down the road. That we have these people that are coming to us right now that are kind of like the babies, that are kind of like the blind men. We're just like, hey, hey, get out of the way, get out of the way. Jesus is coming through. We're the church. So move on out of the way. We're just pushing them aside. Who are we looking down on? Who, who are we rebuking when in fact we should be embracing and taking in and sitting down and giving them value and care. Who are we telling to get out of Jesus' way when in fact Jesus is saying, that's who I'm here for. What are you doing? Because they're all valuable, including the disciples. Even the disciples themselves are valuable to Jesus. You take a look at Luke chapter 9, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Disciples are fighting amongst each other, saying like, I'm the greatest. I'm the Muhammad Ali, right? I'm the greatest. They were all valuable to Jesus. And what does Jesus teach them? Or how does Jesus teach them? It's in verses 47 through 48 of Luke chapter 9. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great." Jesus just taught that in chapter 9. And what are they doing in chapter 18? Shooing kids away. I mean, that happened not too long ago. And as Jesus was teaching them about how the least of them is the greatest, John opens up his big mouth and he answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. See, they're just not getting it. You talk about self-righteous people and trying to push them away from God. And what did Jesus tell them? And here's John. Hey, Master, there's this guy. He's he's claiming to be one of us, but he's not one of us. But then Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. 
Would you guys stop being the self-righteous people thinking that you got all the answers and being so arrogant to think that your way is the right way and all this. And Jesus already addressed them about this stuff. And He had to address it again in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He's doing this over and over again. They're just not getting it. Don't self-righteous people bug you? I bug myself. I'm like that. You know, I, I bug myself too. And you think you're all part of the same team and under the banner of Jesus Christ. But then these self-righteous people have something more to say. Because you're not part of their movement. You're not part of their denomination. You're part of something else. You're part of something that is kind of individual. And, and Jesus said, that's not so. For the one who is not against you is for you. So sometimes I wonder why so few churches work with one another. I just don't get it. I mean, we're, we're for each other. We're under the banner of Jesus. Why is it we're so scattered and separate? What if we just all went back to basics and we received people like children? And in our head right now, in our modern culture, we're, we're thinking like, yeah, children, sweet. They're, they're wonderful and cuddly. And, they're all, and even if they stink, I like them. And you hold them. But let's put our lenses on as to how children were perceived back then. Because it's very different. Children back then, how are they viewed? Because Jesus is attempting to draw this connection between receiving children and receiving the kingdom. And so some of you right now are thinking, oh great, if we receive children, we receive the kingdom. That's easy. Children are easy to receive. I love kids. How are kids viewed back then though? See, a self-righteous religious hypocrite back then did not have the time for children, let alone marginalized people of society. How is the child viewed back then? Because they're not looked upon very favorably at all. See, today, children are like mini-gods. You know, they're, they're worshipped by their parents. They're worshipped by their grandparents. Not so in this time. Back in this time, the mortality rate is high. It's really high. Infanticide is practiced. The value of a child was nothing. There's no value to a kid back then. The value came later. The value came later when that child had something to actually contribute to the family by working, by doing something, by farming, by getting milk, or by doing something. But the unproductive child, one who was not old enough to contribute to the livelihood of the family, that was just considered a liability. Like, grow up. I need you to work. You're just wasting my resources. You're just eating me out of this stuff. You're not contributing anything to the family. So before we cast judgment on those disciples back then, let's not get all upset of them pushing aside babies because you know why? This was just the cultural norm. This was accepted. This is just business as usual. Yeah, you're a baby. Get out of the way. What are you just spitting all up? You're not doing anything. And so they weren't thought of to be of anything of significance. So these guys were just thinking that they were doing their job. Hey, out of the way, out of the way. Jesus is coming through. He has no time for this insignificant, unproductive bundle of flesh. I mean, get out of here. And instead of babies, who got Jesus' time here? Who, who's next in the story in line? A rich young ruler. Someone of significance. Someone of influence. Someone of power. 
And I don't think that this was an accident that Jesus kind of stopped and worked things out and talked to this rich young ruler because what I think happened, and this is totally speculative, I wasn't there. I'm just thinking that this is what happened. It's kind of a cool movie in my mind. I think the disciples, you know, they're, they're going through, they're shooing away people, and, and here are some people with babies, and they're shooing them away too, you know, being tough bodyguards, secret service types, and hey, get out of the way, get out of the way, and, and they, hey, Peter, there's a baby coming through, um, he, he, go get him, go get him, okay. And then others thought that they were insignificant until they got to this ruler, and they were like, oh, whoa, come here, you stay here. You guys clear the way for Jesus over there. Go, go, go. I'm going to hold this rich dude here until Jesus comes. You have a question for him, right? Yeah, I thought so. You have money? Yeah, good. You stay right here. Clear the way. Clear the way. And so, chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I think the disciples were doing that. I think they were guilty of that. The disciples were taught this parable, and right after that, they are failing at this test. And I think Jesus is showing them, like, oh, this is, what is, oh. okay, they got a rich young ruler. I, got, I guess I got to show them again. I guess I got to tell them another story. And so he's making his way. And so they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. We're the disciples. We're following Jesus. We're doing Jesus' work. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. You have a baby. Ooh. And uh, they're pushing them away. And they reserve this spot for this guy of influence, this guy of riches. And sometimes we're guilty of this, aren't we? You come into church and you see some guy and he's like, whoa, he's nicely dressed, nice car. Kids have name brand clothing. Come here, have a seat. Welcome. We have a cafe. And, uh, oh, do you want a cup of coffee? And all this stuff. And then you have some homeless person come off the street. And you're like, hi. Well, what, what happened to all the hospitality? What happened to, oh, there are the restrooms. Oh, there's the coffee. And there, here's a bulletin. Here, have a seat right over here. What, what happened? I think we sometimes do this. And some maybe even subconsciously. You know, we, we look for people of influence. We look for people of power. We look for people who have something to contribute in terms of resources or skills or something that will make a difference in the church, that will make a difference in your life maybe. And sometimes we think that the church and the kingdom are synonymous and we try to finagle thinking that we're making greater impact for the kingdom and for the church when all the while Jesus instructed. Verse 16, But Jesus called them to say, saying, Let the children come to Me. Let those worthless bundles of flesh that you guys view as nothing, as just liabilities, as worthless things, let them come to Me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't say the kingdom of God belongs to children. He said, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to the childlike, not the childish. The kingdom of God belongs to those who feel they are of no worth, who feel they are marginalized, who feel that they have nothing to contribute, that they're just a liability. That's who the kingdom belongs to. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. A child doesn't even know what's theirs or what's not theirs. It's just kind of there and just assuming that whatever. Things are cool. I'm having fun. I'm not bored. 
And the disciples blocked children from Jesus and no doubt rejected children themselves, even though Jesus had already instructed them in the past, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Luke chapter 9, right? It's nine chapters later and they're still not receiving children. And in turn, they are not receiving Jesus. Yet they are disciples. They're followers. So what happens? Jesus teaches them again. So you see how quickly we become self-righteous? See how quickly we become confident in ourselves and we look down on others? We think we've come to Christ and we've read the Bible through in its entirety. We went through Genesis through Revelation and we think we're all that and we can now condemn people and judge people and make all these things. And Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What can children do to enter the kingdom of God? Nothing. They can't do anything. That's why they had no value in that time in history. Because they have nothing to contribute. They couldn't do anything. It's Mother's Day. And you moms out there are thinking, how dare you say that my child is of no value? I'm not saying kids are of no value. I'm just saying they're of little. No, I'm kidding. I'm saying the people back in that period, I'm recording, I'm bringing that history over to you. I'm not, I'm not the one saying they're of no value. That people back then are saying that they're of no value. I think your child is a, of extreme value. Big. In fact, your child is so valuable that you should recruit more people to help out in the children's ministry. Because they're so valuable. We, we need to get more help to serve all those little kids. That's how valuable they are. You know how valuable they are? I think you should give more to the children's ministry. That's how valuable I think they are. Generally speaking, children by nature, how are they? They trust. They receive whatever is given to them. They take it. Generally speaking, sometimes you get a little grumpy child. I don't know what's going on with them. But... What do they have to be taught? They have to be taught not to take things from strangers. Because they do. They just naturally receive. They have to be told, don't take candy from strangers. Right? They have to be taught not to be lured by toys, not to be lured by candy, not to be lured by puppies or whatever. They have a built-in openness about them. They have a built-in trust of people unless something damages that along the way. If something damages that along the way, then it's different. But just a child just kind of coming out, being themselves, this is kind of how they naturally are. So Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. You can't turn away the marginalized and expect to also receive Jesus. When you receive Jesus, you automatically receive the marginalized. There is a correlation between receiving the marginalized and receiving the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then we get to the ruler. This ruler who has been like, hey, stick around here. I know you're waiting for Jesus. We just need to get rid of all these babies. Ah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And so, and here we are to this ruler who, who I think got his way to speak to Jesus because the disciples recognized him as someone of power, someone of influence, someone who was an asset unlike children. 
So as they rebuked the kids and, and Jesus corrected them, here's the rich young ruler kind of waiting, who I think he observed all this stuff going on because his question for Jesus falls in line to what was happening. So I think he's observed all this stuff. I think he's seen Jesus walking up and the disciples rebuking the kids and all this stuff. And then in verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, Jesus, how does this childlike stuff work for me since I'm a ruler? And this guy wants to know what he has to do. This is like so many of us, isn't it? This is a question I hear all the time. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? Because as people, we like to do. We like it. Because doing is empowering. It's something that gives us power. And, and it's something we're capable of. And it gives us this sense of accomplishment and contribution. And this is something that we often hear from people. What do I need to do? Doing something to get us to the next thing to do. We just kind of like lining up things like that. So whether it's a job, you're at a, at a performance review and you get your thing and you want that next pr- promotion, so you go to your supervisor and you're like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to do that? Get there. And we look at it in education. What do I need to do to get to that university? What do I need to do to get to that professional school, that grad school? What do I need to do? Or a physical accomplishment. I want to run a marathon. What do I need to do? I want to do a triathlon. What do I need to do? Whatever it is we like to do, we like to set things up. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, only God is good, so are you acknowledging me as God? And if you are, the question seems to be less than genuine that you would ask that of me. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus told him to keep the latter half of the Ten Commandments. All the do commandments. Because this guy's really good at doing. He's good at not committing adultery. He's good at not murdering. He's good at not stealing and not bearing false witness. He's good at honoring his father and mother. He's good at doing. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. You get a sense that this guy was pretty proud of keeping commandments 6 through 10, right? Since I was a boy. I mean, not even now. I mean, this is stuff that I've been doing forever. Come on. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Why this response of sadness? I mean, if, if you're asking a question about eternal life, receiving eternal life, wouldn't you be filled with joy if you were just told how? No matter what you had to do? I mean, that's a pretty big thing. The reason why this guy is sad, though, is because the thing that he currently possessed, what he had wasn't worth giving up for eternal life. He wanted eternal life, but he didn't want it as bad as keeping that stuff. And there are some who also fall into this camp. Some who currently possess something that they can't give up to follow Jesus. 
Jesus, I'll do anything. Do this. Except that. I'll do anything you want except that. I meant to just say except that. What's stopping you from Jesus? Maybe it's the one thing. Maybe it's several things. But what's preventing you from coming to Jesus completely? And this isn't an instruction for everyone to sell everything and distribute to the poor. Right? This is not the instruction. If you believe that, sell everything and distribute to me. If you believe that. Jesus' call is deeper than that. It's much deeper than that. Because not everyone struggles with giving up their material goods. Some people are very generous with their stuff. You want it here. I've seen people when, when we visited orphanages or when we visited uh, rescue centers and things like that. When, when I was at New Day for children a couple months ago and we were visiting, one of the girls there, it's, it's a rescue center for girls who were sex trafficked and they were rescued from that. One of the girls there, she was saying like, I like that sweater with a woman that was visiting with me. And it was cold up there. It was snowing. She took the sweater off and gave it to her. And they were all shocked, like, oh, you're, you're really giving her the sweater? And the gospel isn't selling all that you have to distribute to the poor. It's deeper than that. Because some people, that's easy. The rich young ruler was able to keep the latter half of the commandments. But he couldn't keep the first one. Number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Jesus doesn't call everyone to sell everything and distribute to the poor, but he does call all of his followers to unconditionally surrender the top spot of your heart. The most important thing in your life, what you place first as your most important treasure, that is to be surrendered to him. That's what he wants. And for some, that's money. For others, it's a relationship. It's a person. It's a child. It might be an addiction. It might be an ideology. It might be some sort of political stance. But what it all boils down to is a rebellion. A rebellion. An idol placed in place of God. What's holding you back from Jesus this morning? What is in that place? What idol is preventing where only Jesus belongs in your life? What is preventing you from completely trusting in Jesus? Now, if your child is your idol, it doesn't mean that you get rid of your child. Some of you were maybe hoping for that. Well, please, please say get rid of my... It means... You place that child on the altar. And you pray for God's wisdom as to how to deal with your idolatry. It doesn't mean like, yes, get rid of the child. Some idols you can't get rid of. That's one of them. But there are some idols that you can just get rid of. Just, all right, that's done. And most material things are like this. You can get rid of it. This this idol of this thing, yeah, I guess all right. You toss it. But there are some that aren't, right? Like your children or your intellect. I, I don't advise getting lobotomies. Right? You can't do that. Although some of you might benefit from that. But anyway. 
What idol is preventing you from entering into His kingdom? What is taking precedence before God? Verses 24 through 26. Jesus, seeing that He had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Our time on earth is a finite time. Right? The, the seconds that we have are numbered. With that in mind, will you let the temporary things of life dictate the eternal, or will you let the eternal dictate the temporary? Will your temporary idol dictate eternal life for you? Are you willing to do that? Or will God dictate how you deal with the temporary things of life? Who can be saved? This guy has everything. He seems to be blessed by everything. If he can't be saved, who can be saved? Those who have God first in their life. It's not as simple to say that eternal life is determined by giving up everything to the poor. It's giving up whatever is idolatrous in your life. But this isn't dependent on you. It's dependent on God. But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. God saves. God convicts. You ask Him, what what is it? What what is that idol in my life? We can't save ourselves. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's what starts this whole thing back in verse 9. Jesus was leading the disciples down a path He was going with this flow, showing them that they can't save themselves. And over and over again, they failed. Talked about children way back when, and they're like pushing children aside. Talking about parable of a rich Pharisee and a tax collector, and they're not getting in. They're still doing those things. And they believed themselves to be righteous, and they treated others with contempt. They prevented children from coming to Him. They prevented a blind man from coming to Him. Man, we need God. Because we hear this stuff all the time. We hear the Gospel and we hear the Scriptures all the time, yet we're doing our own stuff all the time. How we need Him to show us that we are unrighteous and we're full of contempt. How we need God so that we are more like Jesus in embracing the marginalized. And if we can't embrace the marginalized, do we understand how Jesus really embraced us? See, things aren't the same in the kingdom of God as they are for the kingdom of men. In our kingdoms, we get preferential treatment based off of how much money we have, based off of who we are, the connections that we have, who we know, you know, and the things that we own and what we have and where we're from, where we got educated. It's actually really complicated how we figure out who gets what. And things with Jesus are really simple. It's only about our relationship with Him. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Yes, it is. Why? Because they don't get the same preferential treatment they're accustomed to. That idol that you have there, you get something from that. You get some sort of preferential treatment from that. So you place a relationship there. You're getting love from that idol that you're not getting from somewhere else. And so you've placed that there instead of getting it from Jesus. 
that job, that addiction, whatever that idol is that you've placed there, you're getting some sort of preferential treatment from that. So you're giving up the good seats. You're giving up all the perks. You're giving up the comp tickets and the special gifts from that idol. And they can't work their magic anymore because you can't depend on yourselves in the kingdom of God. You can't depend on that idol in the kingdom of God because you have to depend on Jesus. So that thing's wiped out. That addiction's wiped out. That relationship, that money, that job, that whatever is up there is wiped out. And Jesus is there. And you have to depend on Him. So no more preferential treatment. Except from God. And that's a pretty good one. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for someone who is completely self-reliant in this world to rely on God. It is so hard. How difficult it is for someone who's totally independent in this world to, to depend on God. You know, wealth, riches, all those types of things, whatever that idol is, those are currencies of our world. It gets you things when you want them, where you want them, who you want them with, how you want them, but that idol does not work in the kingdom of God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The sacrifices that we've made for the kingdom will see much more than we've given up. Way more. But for those who supposedly sacrificed, but their motives were actually impure, they don't receive the same promise. See, we can't manipulate God. God knows our hearts. And the person that comes to mind in this is Judas Iscariot. You know, he's following God. He's doing all this stuff. But what did he get at the end? See, the promise is not for the selfish or those thinking that they can manipulate God into giving them something more in eternity. Taking that vow of poverty taking that vow of silence, taking that vow of whatever you're feeling you're giving up to sacrifice for God, it doesn't guarantee you riches in eternity. God knows our heart. He knows what is truly sacrifice. And our time here on earth is finite. Eternity is determined in this finite time. Enter into the kingdom of God now in your temporary moments. Yes, the values are completely different and we are led by different things in the world, we are led by our flesh and things not of God. But as we live in the world, we don't have to live of it. And we can live by the way of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. May we be childlike in our faith and not be too proud to reject Jesus and to remove those idols in our life. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves before you and ask you, what is it that is holding us back like that which held back the rich young ruler? For some of us, that may be wealth, and for others of us, it's something else. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of those things because eternal life is at stake. And so, Lord, there may be some who have something they're not willing to give up, like the rich ruler was not willing to give up his riches to follow you. I pray, Lord, that you would soften people's hearts who are struggling with this. In Jesus' name, amen.